the hard shoulder on Newstalk with Nissan subscribe and drive no deposit no compromise no fuss find out more at nissan.ie you're very welcome back to The Hard Shoulder. Kieran Cudahy with you until 7 o'clock this evening. And I'm delighted to be joined for the Thursday interview by Tony Duff and the CEO of the Analithi Drug Project. Tony, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you, Kieran. Thanks for having me on. Um, I suppose we're, we're, we're used to talking to you about your work yeah. and and about issues in the city and uh, uh, drug use. And we might touch on some of that. But, you know, to a degree, people's accents tell us the story of their lives. And it's, it's true for you as much as anyone. And it, it's not an Irish accent. So where are you from originally? So so um, I'm from London. I'm from South London. It makes it, it, it's a, it makes a difference when you live in London, whether you're from South <laughs> or North London. Uh, not dissimilar to Dublin in that regard. Um, yeah, and no, I'm from London, um, born to Irish parents. Uh, Mum and dad are from Wexford. They live down in Dryna, uh, Anne and Stephen. And... Um, yeah, the, we were born, uh, my brother and my sister and myself, into a London Irish family or an Irish family. We identified as London Irish. Um, it's, it's, I think for second generation Irish, it's, it's not uncommon to really identify very strongly with your Irish heritage and to be really quite close to your, 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 that generation above you. Um, and for me, I suppose uh, it was fair to say that um, in, I was born in 1970 and uh, mm. born into a period where, you know, I suppose would, there was still that element of no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. And um, I was only a child. I was born into this. And uh, but mum and dad were living through it and such. And um, and it was difficult. It was difficult from time to time. There was still obviously the troubles was, was still were still raging. Yeah. Um, there was all sorts of issues and there was racism towards Irish people and. And that kind of thing. When you talk about the house being an, an Irish house or a London Irish house, how does that manifest itself? What does it look like? How is it different from mm, the standard it's London sound next kind door? It's cliched and things like bacon yeah, and cabbage and oh yeah, and the Sacred Heart and you know that all of those of thing. things. I went I went over to a friend of mine's house who lived who lived nearby, and his mother was from Inniscorty as well, and the house smelt and looked very very similar. You know, it, it's very, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to to explain the difference. But I knew that we were different. You know, I knew that we weren't English, um, and you know, just even the way where we where we would congregate and meet. As I got older and I started to, you know, maybe socialise and go to the pub and things, we went to Irish bars and you know, mixed with uh, people who were second generation Irish as well, and people who uh, mm. were older than us and and Irish, or people who were Irish, you know, living living in London. There was a real melting pot. Uh, and that was right across the board. Some are, some obvious areas. I lived down in, in, in Greenwich and around sort of that, that area, Blackheath area. But North London would be maybe more associated with it. You know, you've got, you've got uh, you know, around Wembley and, and, and Harleston and all those kind of places. So it, it's, it's really not uncommon to be second generation Irish in London or indeed yeah. in the other of the UK. Um, and and did, did you have a, a dual identity? Like, were you kind of... You know Morrissey <laughs> type of thing. Oh, yeah. well, the music was, music was important. Thing, music, music was important. Yeah, yeah. I think. Um, uh, do we have uh, dual that dual identity? I think so. I think that. I think that you know. Uh, I I if I identified as London Irish, not as English, and um, and so when to give you a good example of that, I guess when the Pogues came along. Yeah. Around 1982. Um, that was a huge issue, an issue, issue, not an issue, a huge deal for us. Is that my brother, my sister, myself, and um, it became very cool to be Irish suddenly uh, in in London at that age, that teenage years. And um, you know, before the Pogues uh, did Fairy Tale in New York and became famous 
extremely famous for that. They were far more important to me yeah. uh, prior to that. Um, I, I, my, my first gig was in, in uh, uh, St. Patrick's Day in 86. You know, I was 16 years of age. I went over to the, uh, the Hammersmith uh, Palais and, and, and saw them there. And that was, that was something else. But that whole identity thing was tied up in that. You know? So you, you were cheering when Ray Houghton put the ball in oh, the back of, of the English absolutely. net. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> of course. And, and, you know, people might, I mean, I'm not into football. That's the other thing. Yeah. Being, being a man from London, people are like, you know, every time I meet another fellow, they want to know which team I support. Yeah. And it's like, I'm more into the, the gigs and things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when you were growing up, did you, did you come over and back quite a bit? I mean, as, look, London, was that little bit further away in the 70s or 80s compared to now, you know, where you can get yeah. over next to nothing, but it's still not that far. Yeah, no, we did. We came over every summer. There were, the, the, my, my first time on an aeroplane was when I was 19. I went off with a pal of mine. We went to a summer, a, a sun holiday. But before that, it was Wexford and London, yeah. backwards and forwards and for the summer uh, and that kind of thing. And yeah, that was that was how we sort of identified with things, I think. But like the one thing that, that sort of struck me around when I was thinking about this was was when my parents left, you know, and and leaving Wexford and going over at the age of... My mother left when she was 16 and had to leave as an economic migrant. My dad left when he was 12 to be with his father, who had gone over to re, as a labourer to rebuild London after the Second World War. There was work there. Yeah. Um, so so mum, I can't... I've got three daughters, and I can't imagine a 16-year-old leaving. And people listening might think, you know, it's just London, he can get on a plane and go over. Mum left in a scorty and travelled for about almost a full day to get to Pimlico in London, yeah. ride the whole way across. You know, it was it was it was it was traumatic for her. You know, I can't imagine it. It was must have been very very. Difficult. People would have made that yeah. journey and never come back. Yeah, you know, they they would go to London and they might never. Yeah, uh, and uh, and the uh, thing that's is, how like, far away it I was. don't want to make out like London um, was all negative for, yeah. like, for the Irish. I've mentioned racism and things. A lot of people of that generation enjoyed living in London and and got a lot out of London. I enjoyed living in London, but when I got to uh, you know, I moved to Dublin in 2000, so I was 30, and I moved mm. over with, with my wife, Sarah, and um, we've lived here ever since. Um, but I did enjoy living in London, and it, it is a bit of, I suppose, it, it's a young person city. It, it can be pretty wild. Yeah, it, it certainly can. <laughs> it certainly can. Yeah. It would be great to be able to get over and back again, it, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. You wanted to be a photographer originally. Oh, you yeah. were a photographer. I, were, I was a photographer. So my, 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 I, I left... Uh, college i did photography and film studies and things like that but i went off to do photography at christie's auction house in 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 st james's in london so taking photographs of fine art did that for a couple of years and that that then like the thing about uh, that period was there was plenty of recessions and the recession hit around 90 and, and i was the last one in and first one out and that was that mm. and then it was really looking around at what, what my options were i was unemployed for eight months and i did some voluntary work in a in a ho in a hostel in in Dean Street, which kind of led me on to the work mm. I, I do now. Oh, was that just, had had you an interest in that type of work or was this at that point just to fill time? I'm, I'm unemployed, I may as well do something. I always had an interest. My, like uh, when I was 15, hard to believe, when I was 15, uh, I, I was at a, a, a wedding in Westminster Cathedral. My cousin was a, was getting married there. And, um, and there was a group of, of street drinkers. I always had this kind of interest, I suppose maybe because of the, the pogues and the, the, the drinking yeah. culture. And, the, and I knew that, that uh, there were many Irish on the streets. And I went over and I chatted to a group of street drinkers there. Um, my mother was keeping a close eye. I didn't realize she was watching what was going on. Uh, but I had a chat with them because I was fascinated you know, by their lives. And, and, and I, I think I wanted to help. I didn't know how. There was no kind of career path or anything like that. 
Um, so when I when I got to this point where I was unemployed, mm. it was an opportunity to go and do some voluntary work, and I did this work in in Dean Street. In a, it was for young people. Uh, who who it was a night shelter, and it was very what we would now. I would have the language now was low threshold, meaning that they had lo- like uh, very few rules, and they they accepted sort of very difficult behaviours. Um, and it was a, and it was sort of reducing harm to the person. And um, and, and we it was a, it was an eye opener for me, and it really captured me. And I, I knew that's where I wanted to be working. Um, I didn't know it was for the rest of my life or anything, but I wanted to do it um, and and to work through uh, with people to see because just to help, you know, like an, a, in a in a in a proper and meaningful way. Uh, if you're just tuning into the hard shoulder, Tony Duffin of the Analithy Drug Project is my guest this week for the Thursday interview. Are you driven by a, a kind of a, a desire to help individuals on an individual basis is that, is is that what motivates you or is it a kind of a broader societal thing i would like to improve things i think it's a little bit of both isn't it like um you you know i i really enjoy talking to the people that come to 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 Analithi and 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 you know use our services i enjoy talking to them but that's not my job anymore my job is to work with with um, the, the 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 head of services Dawn Russell and 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 the team leaders there and and the staff that's where I can have sort of a kind of bigger impact in terms mm. of working with them, uh, but also sort of influencing policy and, and such, working working with the state uh, through the role as, as CEO of the Analyphy. Because you know, like Analyphy, like I'm I'm really privileged to be leading that. It's 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 uh, it's our 40th anniversary next year. Um, so Analyphy has had many people come through the doors working there. Mm. Um, this is my tenure now, um, and. It's had a lot of influence in terms of informing drug policy in Ireland and, and improving things. Um, so it's that whole working within the individual, you know, and there is a lot of sadness and all that, but there's a lot of sort of funny moments as well. Like you can imagine there's some great crack in Dublin, you know? Yeah, I'm and sure it, there is. Yeah. We, we, and, and I want to talk about the work you're doing there, but we kind of skipped over maybe uh, your, well, no, it's not your fault, it's my fault. We skipped over your um, your decision to come to Ireland. Ah, yeah. Okay. Uh, what what motivated that? So I'd been travelling with my wife Sarah um, for when we were, we were lucky enough to go off for six months for uh, travelling around the world. Got back to London and really wanted to try something new, but didn't know whether I wanted to do something new in terms of the work or so, do this somewhere else. And there was a lot of discussion. Uh, so we came to Ireland um, because Ireland was doing really well still uh, around that time. At two thousand, uh, Celtic Tiger was still booming away, and mm. there was work. So we came over. Um, but still, you know, as a, as a young couple, you know, we, we had the issues around the price of rent and salaries and all those sort of things like anybody yeah. else. And, it, you know, it was a bit of a challenge to sort of settle down in. But uh, but we did. And, and, and I can't believe it. Like it's it's 21 years uh, next month, you know, so time flies. The, 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 the Ireland that emerged during the Celtic Tiger was very different from the Ireland that the Pogues might have sang about. Mm. I mean, was that jarring for you? Like, did you lament the the loss of a kind of a, a no. particular? No, type I don't. Of no, Ireland? I don't think so. I mean, there, there was there was still there's still a lot of Irish, obviously there's a lot of Irish charm, uh, and I mean, I know I hear people giving out about Ireland all the time through the media and stuff, but like you know. It, it's a it's a great city to live in. It's a great country to live in, mm. um, and generally, you know, people are very accepting. And and how progressive it has been in the last number of years, uh, through through a lot of a lot of uh, uh, policy changes. Um, so, I it, think change is good. Ireland couldn't stay the way it was. It didn't want to stay the way it was. Um, but uh, but change can be difficult as well for people. But I do think that Ireland is a fantastic country to live in. What well, what was the 
drug, the illegal drug landscape like then when you came here in the early noughties? Okay, so when I moved over, I mean, there was a lot of alcohol um, and, and, and heroin was particularly, and still is, a particular problem. Uh, and things have got more complicated since, since 2000. Um, with, there was, there was all, I think there's always been this penchant for, you know, uh, um, poly drug use. So this idea of more than one drug, alcohol, heroin, cocaine, um, ecstasy, all these different drugs mixing. Mm. And it, not just with the group that I work with, but with that kind of recreational drug use as well. So I think, I think things have changed quite dramatically. And unfortunately, we have more drugs. They're more potent. Uh, there's more harm associated to them. Coming out of COVID, I'd be worried about people's tolerance. I'd be worried about um, uh, will will we see more overdoses? You, you know, there's a lot that of people worry. won't have had access and may have been using less over the yeah, last year. Yeah, yeah. So, so whenever there's a period of, in a person's uh, life where they where they've not used so many drugs as they might have done before, then their tolerance goes down, and that's mm. when they're at risk of overdose. And I think I think that that just to say that coming out of COVID. Uh, it's it's quite likely that we're that we're going to have to really keep a close eye on on that side of things and and work with people to make sure that they're aware of the risks that they're taking um, as as always. Uh, but yeah, but uh, there was heroin was a thing, and and even then, you know, the, one of the first pieces of work I did was to open up a night shelter called Clancy Night Shelter, uh, which had uh, which was for young. Um, homeless um, injecting drug users, people who injected heroin, because they couldn't get in anywhere. Mm. They were left in the street, and uh, and and Clancy took them in. Uh, Clancy Nightshare took them in and showed that, that that actually people could work, be worked with, and, and help. Was that, are, are the shelters that existed here already were were not low threshold as you described no. them, was it? They they had far more rules and regulations yeah, and hoops yeah, to jump through. Yeah, exactly, and it left people out in the cold, to be honest, um, and beha- and anyone with kind of difficult behaviours, uh, and particularly around heroin, uh, were, were left outdoors. But that's that's changed dramatically. But that was one of the first pieces mm. of work, and then and then there was a lot of street drinking, and we opened up. Uh, uh, a wet shelter uh, about 2002 uh, on Angel Street, um, and that that was a really uh, great success as well. And I bump I've, since even now, I since I still bump into people who live there who I thought would be dead by now, and because of the work that we have done there, yeah. they they had managed to reduce their intake or indeed become abstinent and have good lives, you know, like healthier lives. What's that like when you meet them? It's amazing. And I see people, this is what we don't get to talk about very often on some of these other interviews. Yeah. It's like, I, I could be walking down the road and a guy on a bike, young man on a bike cycling past, give me a wave, got his work gear on. Uh, but I know two years ago he was injecting down the alleyways of Dublin. You know, so it's, it is good. You can't, you can't, you can't. Like that's private to him and, yeah. and us. But but uh, but that there's many examples like that. There's lots of tragedies, but there's lots of, great uh, outcomes for people as well people's lives get turned around and i assume that's that's that must be so motivating for people mm. who work in it when you bump into people yeah 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 because i mean uh, it is absolutely um, but you, the team are fantastic and they're very busy and once they get that person handed on and they're over to the next group you know treatment rehabilitation etc they turn around and they get them to get, get yeah. on to the next person uh, because unfortunately you know there is a lot of work to be done out there um and i think that's no surprise to anyone listening you know in terms of in terms of dublin there's a there's a and islands generally, there's a very serious drug problem here, I'm afraid. Has that drug problem, has it changed over the last year because of COVID? Has, has, have the patterns of drug use changed? 
so yeah, yes. I mean, I think what I think is is that we'll, it'll become clearer. It's been so busy um, with with dealing with COVID, and the team have uh, have worked in partnership with the HSE and the City Council uh, and other NGOs uh, like uh, Dublin Simon Community McFerry, etc. We've worked really hard uh, the, collectively, and just to say that as a consequence of that hard work, only four percent of homeless people contracted COVID, which compared to fifty percent of homeless people in Paris. You know, so so this is yeah. This, people's lives have been saved, and actually, only four, four um, sadly, but still, only four people have passed away due to COVID um, in, in, within the homeless population. So it, you know, there's been great success here, um, and uh, as I say, all in partnership. I'm not going to sit here taking credit for this. This yeah. is about all the hard work that people yeah. have done. So just to say to you, yeah, there there, were, there, are, there have been changes. The example we worked down in Limerick as, as well, and and around August time. There were there were bags of heroin being sold for ten euros rather than twenty euros, so smaller bags, you know, to 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 meet where there was less money around, for example, and and then in the same sort of deal, people would get uh, crack uh, crack cocaine two two rocks for twenty five euros, twelve fifty yeah. each. Uh, a couple of years ago, you got a bigger rock, but it was fifty euros, and that's how it was sold. And um, and I think you know crack cocaine is 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 very much recognised as as a very big problem. Uh, in Ireland yeah, now. it's no longer an up-and-coming problem. I would have spoken to you before and we would have been out and about and, yeah, and talked yeah, about yeah. this as kind of the, the, the coming thing. No longer, it's here. It's here. To, to a large it, yeah, degree. Yeah, it is. And and it's it's very problematic. We we um, we give out crack pipes in our needle exchange, <coughs> excuse me, in our needle exchange uh, to to um, to help reduce the risks associated with crack. Mm. Um, you know, that, that's how you stop uh, people's lips will crack when when they smoke crack um uh, or split and that's how you might pass hepatitis c between the two people so you give people crack pipes to use themselves and also the gauze reduces the risk of scarring on the lungs so you know there's, there's these things that we do um that will reduce those risks but also engage people really meaningfully because that's the really the the bottom line the harm reduction interventions the low threshold nature and then the engagement with people keeping a relationship up with people mm. And getting them through to to other other healthier options, treatment, rehabilitation, etc. Uh, if you were to imagine what the landscape then would look like in in another ten years' time, yeah. what will it? So uh, I, I assume you'd think we will eventually have this <laughs> supervised injection centre uh, that has been uh, yeah. on the cards for about four or five years now, uh, and no sign of it. I mean, what will it look like? Oh, I think we'll have supervised ingestion facilities in ten, within with, well within the ten years. Uh, I I think that we will have uh, decriminalised drugs for personal use. Um, there is there, there will be. A, I'm pretty confident there'll be an announcement soon. Government has been working on that through the national drug strategy. Yeah. I'm hopeful that over the summer there'll be some some announcement around a diversion scheme and and, and that's to be announced. But but uh, we'll wait and see about that. Um, but in ten years' time, I would hope that that will all have proven to be successful. That People who use drugs will be seen as people who need help rather than punishment, uh, increasingly, as they do in, say, Portugal, where there's a decriminalised uh, environment. Um, I think that, you know, I, I, I fear that if we look back over the last 10 years, that unfortunately where the, 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 the types of drugs have diversified and there's quite a lot of them, uh, which is amazing for an island surrounded by water. You know, the, there's, a, there's a lot of drugs being trafficked uh, through through Ireland um, and, uh, and arrive on these shores. Um, so um, I would hope that 
people will get through to treatment and rehabilitation faster. That's already begun because actually there was lots of improvements to treatment and rehabilitation during COVID. Mm. You had to move quickly and a lot of change happened. So COVID, uh, whilst it was very tragic and, and, and wished, we all wish it never happened, from a from an addiction services point of view, there was lots of positive changes okay. in sort of getting people in and, and getting them yeah. uh, as safe as we could. Um, so yeah, so I think I think we'll we'll, we'll have a a better understanding of people who use drugs, and they'll get through to treatment and rehabilitation faster, and they'll be as safe as possible if they are still u- well, they will be using drugs. Tony Duffin, CEO of the Anna Liffey Drug Project. That is our lot for today's edition of The Hard Shoulder. Off the Ball are up next. I will be back on Monday. Joe Malloy of Off the Ball fame, no less. He is going to be in the hot seat for The Hard Shoulder tomorrow. Make sure you tune in from four.